All right, um, Luke 12. Y'all be turning to Luke chapter 12. Um, let me say first, we're y'all know we're coming up on two years that we've been in the in the Gospel of Luke, and uh, we're just about halfway through it. And I know some folks would probably prefer we be finished with it already, but uh, let me say what we're doing is is the best way to study Scripture. Because it allows us to, to deal with things as we come to it, not skip over the hard stuff. And I just thank God for a pastor who, uh, who preaches through books rather than through meaningless, um, meaningless um, series that, uh, you know, how to be a Twinkie in a ding-dong world type of stuff. So I uh, praise God for, for Buffy. <laughs> And, uh, and what we're doing. So anyway, uh, go ahead and uh, we're in Luke chapter 12. So we're going to continue with uh, what Buffy, kind of the theme that he started last week uh, with the next several messages, which is good heavenly parenting. This is going to be part two. But real quick, let's, uh, let's review. Well, who wrote the gospel of Luke? Luke. Uh, who is Luke? Historian, doctor, physician, ministry companion of Paul. Yeah. So who's he writing the gospel to? Theophilus and the Gentiles. Who is Theophilus? That's right. That's right. And what's the purpose of the book? Orderly? Orderly. Orderly. They, they, thank you, Cass. That's right. And to have certainty that the things he was being taught were true. All right. Good stuff. Questions? No? All right. Well, let me start out with this. In 1923, uh, there was a very important meeting held in Chicago. Now, at this meeting were nine of the most important, famous, and influential people in the world, the most influential businessmen and bankers in the world. They had gathered together, and uh, among them was the president of the world's largest steel company, the president of the largest utility company, the president of the largest gas company, the largest wheat advisor, the president of the New York Stock Exchange, a member of the president's cabinet, the largest investor on Wall Street, the head of the world's greatest monopoly, and the president of the Bank of International Settlements. And they were all together present for this meeting. So that's a, that was a pretty high-powered group, right? These men were the leaders of the financial world. Well, if you fast forward 25 years to 1948, it was a way different picture. Charles Schwab, who was one of the men, he died bankrupt, living on borrowed money for the last five years of his life. Samuel Insull died a fugitive and broke. He was running from the law in another country. Howard Hobson had gone insane. Uh, Arthur Critton died bankrupt and in another country. Richard Whitney had just been released from Sing Sing. Albert Fall was pardoned from prison so he could go home and die. Uh, Jesse Livermore, uh, Leon Frazier, and Ivar Krugel all committed suicide. So all these men were masters of finance, but they were also mastered by money. So I tell you that story so I can ask you this question. How many Christians take the time to really think about this kind of tragedy? I guess not very many. We think, we think we're different, don't we? We think we're pretty different. I mean, most believers don't desire that kind of money, billions of dollars. That's billions with a B. I don't think most believers don't want that kind of money, so we say don't worry about us, right? But look, the danger for us is still the same. 
greed and covetedness aren't determined by an amount. They're not determined by an amount that you desire, but the, the real problem is the need to always have just a little bit more. That's, that's the danger, and the danger is real today just as it was back then. The need for more has done more to tear down our culture than it has to motivate people. So we live in a time today that, that's, that's immersed in materialism. It's immersed in greed. It's flooded with advertising that says you need more than what you got. You need more than what you have to be happy. We're told if you don't have the money, that's okay. That's fine. Just, just use a credit card. Pay for it later. Don't wait. Don't save. You know, just go ahead and get it now. Uh, spend money that you don't have. It's instant gratification, right? And we've been a prisoner to it. We have. But the issue of greed isn't new. It's not new. Jesus taught about it 2,000 years ago. And so if you have your Bibles, Luke 12, that's where we're at. Let's all stand to honor and to honor the uh, perfect and holy Word of God. Luke chapter 12, we'll start in verse 13. And someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed you me a, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a certain rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grains and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have, what you have prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let's pray. Father. Good Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for so uh, for the truth that is in it. And Lord, I pray and, and, and I thank you for what it's done to me as I've studied it this week. I pray, uh, God, now that, that what you've shown me, you will show those here with us this morning. God, I pray more than anything else that you're glorified, that your name is risen. Lord, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for what you've done. I thank you for what you've given us. And Lord, now I ask you to hide me behind the cross. I ask you to, to fill me so full of your spirit that everything that comes out of me, every breath, every word, every beat of sweat, because you know I'm always hot, come from the spirit, come from you and not from myself. God, I ask you these things now in the most lovely, beautiful, and precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So let's, let's look at the context. Let's look at the background. <clears throat> at this point where we're at, the, Jesus has got these huge crowds are gathered around Jesus. Thousands of people were there. They were all climbing on top of each other, just trying to get to him. And uh, being the teacher that he is, he starts teaching. And he took this opportunity in front of all of these people to, to teach some spiritual things. But then he gives a pretty serious warning. Look back at uh, verses 8 to 10. 
He says, And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be, not, be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. And, and right here at this point, just as Jesus stops, he takes a breath, he takes a drink of water, boom, somebody suddenly interrupts him. They have a personal complaint. Look down at verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Now that, that's amazing to me. That's crazy. What he just said, what Jesus just said in, in, in verses 8 to 10, what we just read, he said to the whole crowd, they should have been sh shaking in their sandals. But this guy here, he didn't hear a word of it. He didn't hear a word of it. He was, he was so focused on temporary things that, that he had no concern or no time for the eternal truth that Jesus was speaking. And, and, and maybe he had a legitimate complaint. Maybe the thing that he was talking about was a legitimate issue, but this wasn't the time or place for it. It wasn't the time or place to bring it up. And Jesus refused to hear the complaint or deal with it. Look at verse 14. He, but, but he said to him, man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? So in other words, he's saying, hey, look, you're interrupting me. You, you, I'm crying out about eternal issues here, and, and, and you bring this garbage. It, the real problem wasn't with, with the guy's issue. It wasn't the, with his inheritance. That wasn't the real issue. The real issue was with his heart because it was consumed with greed and covetedness. So the thing he needed most wasn't the money and the inheritance and the money that he was complaining about, but his real need was to have his heart changed, right? So Jesus deals with that problem. All right, so here's our first point. Write this down. Watch out for greed. Watch out for greed. Look at verse 15. Then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. So, so the word greed here is a descriptive word in the Greek. It's the word pleonexia, and it literally means thirst for having more. And it's not just a normal thirst that we would think about. It's not a thirst um, of just being, it, it, it's a thirst that can never be satisfied. So if you think about it like this, think about, you know, how hot it's been this summer. Think about when it was back when it was 115 degrees outside. Say you, you go outside in the hottest part of the day and you cut the grass, and uh, you finish, you're done, you're hot, you're sweaty, you're tired, you're thirsty. So you go inside and you, you mix yourself up a drink, but you mix up some salt water and you drink it. What's that going to do for you? Makes you more thirsty. Makes you thirstier. That's right. So what do you do? You, you drink more and you drink more and you drink more because you get thirstier and thirstier and thirstier. So you drink till you get sick. Well, that's the way greed works. That's the exact way greed works. You always need more. You're never content. You're never satisfied. Someone asked the, the richest man in the world one time, they asked him, how much money would it take for you to be satisfied? You know what his answer was? Just one more dollar than I have. Just one more dollar than I have. So it's always just a little bit more than I have now. You know what the conflict with that is in Scripture? Greed tries to find contentment in things. It tries to find happiness. It tries to find satisfaction in stuff and not in God. And look, when greed go, go, when it goes unchecked, you know what it has the power to do? It has the power to turn your heart away from God. It can replace your passion for Him with a passion for temporary things. 
That's what it does. That's why Paul said in Colossians 3, 5, among, uh, he, he calls greed, among other things, he calls it idolatry. Uh, the sin of idolatry, he said in Colossians 3, 5, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. So what's idolatry? It's when we put things above God in our heart. So it can be the thirsting for money or the stuff money can buy. It's thirsting for that more than thirsting for God. It also means putting things like a desire for, for power or a desire for position above God. And Jesus warns us in the text that we're reading today. He says, be on your guard against this. The word he used is, is beware, which means to, to be alert, to keep your eyes open for this sin. Why? Because even in that day, even in Jesus' day, the sin of greed had consumed so many people. Now, how much more do you think we deal with it today? Look at our world. Look how much stuff is out there for us as compared to when Jesus was walking. So we should be aware and be alert to greed much more today. Say you had a shindig in your house. You had a bunch of people over to your house. And somebody came up and said, hey, man, you know, one of the people you invited, he's, he's a nice guy. I like him, but you, you know he's a thief, don't you? Well, what are you going to do? You're probably going to be a little bit uh, more alert towards that guy. You're going to be paying more attention to him while he's in your house, right? Well, that's what Jesus is telling us. He says, watch out because there's a thief roaming around. He's running around and his name's greed. He's out, it's out to steal your passion for God. He says, be on guard against. And that's, that's he's, he's saying, be, uh, set up a guard over your life. Don't let a thief in. And, and what it means is back then when Jesus was walking the earth, what happened was is that they would put guards in towers who would uh, recognize the people coming and going out of the kingdoms. And the guard would look for friends or he would look for enemies. And he wouldn't open the gate for enemies. So that's what Jesus is trying to relay to them. He's saying, keep your eyes open for this enemy. The enemy, greed. That's the enemy. He said, keep your eye open. Recognize greed as an enemy. Realize the dangers that it brings into your life. It carries a destructive power, doesn't it? There's so many ways it can creep into our lives, too. So we got to be vigilant. We have to be on alert not to let it have any foothold in our lives. Like I said, it, it can creep in so many, a thousand different ways. I mean, even one innocent little purchase... Say you need a new couch. Your couch is messed up, tore up. You need a new couch. So, so you go buy it. But now the, your recliner don't match the new couch. So you've got to replace it. Well, now your coffee table's too big. So you've got to replace that. Right? So, so now you've got all this new furniture. Well, you're going to need to paint the living room. Because it looks all, the walls look all dingy. So you've got to paint the living room, get a new rug, get some new lamps. It's, it's, that's all better. But now when you walk into your bedroom, you hate walking in there because it don't match the nice living room. So you replace, you got to update all that. So now you're in what? Major debt. You're in major debt, so you got to get a second job so you can pay it all off. Well, what's happened? Now you don't have any time for God. That's what gets, re gets replaced is your time for God. Now, I ain't saying a new couch is bad. That's not bad. But you got to guard your heart. Your flesh wants a house full of new stuff. Everything new, everything bigger, everything better. You buy, buy, buy until you can't hardly breathe. But that, that debt, it, it's crushing you because, I don't, hey, you got a lot of, you know, at least you got a lot of, a lot of new stuff, right? All your neighbors think you got a, 
got money because you got a lot of new stuff. You got a boat sitting out in the driveway, a new, new lawnmower or whatever it is. But guess what it is? Guess what that is? It's dangerous. It's dangerous when we have a lot. I'm just being honest. You know, we have a lot in this country, and that's a dangerous thing. It really is. We got to be careful. We do. One person put it like this. He said, the trend of the government is to support us with material securities from cradle to the grave, providing all kinds of insurances, health, old age, education, unemployment, and so on. In addition, we insure ourselves against fire, earthquake, hurricane, accident, and old age. These safeguards are not wrong, but they can very easily become a serious hindrance to our complete trust in God. The truth is, if, 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 uh, if our bills are paid, our refrigerator is full, we got money in the bank, we got a tendency to feel secure and comfortable. And our sense for our need for God is a little bit less when we're comfortable. And here's the most dangerous thing about that. It's that my greatest need is to feel and know that my need of God is every hour, every minute of every day. So the danger of abundance is not feeling the need to cling to God. That's the danger in it. And that's why I said before, I've said this before, comfort and security is an idol. As much as we don't want to think it is, we want to feel safe. We want to have comfort. But guess what? That makes our security and comfort found in stuff and not in God. It really does. But there's a balance to all this. There's a balance to every bit of it. I, I don't want to be weird. I don't want to sound weird um, and, think, and let y'all think that uh, I think we all need to be living off the land. Because that's not true. I don't, think there's, I don't think there's anything wrong with owning nice stuff and having nice things. But the danger comes in when you begin to need those nice things to be content. That's where the danger is. When you set your affections on those things and place them above God, that's the danger. So what happens is you start to spend more time involved with those things and less time with God. You start to drift away from the Lord. And we all like nice things. We do. I mean, don't get me wrong. I like nice stuff. But can you be content when you don't have them? That's the question you've got to ask yourself. Can you be content without having them? Jesus gives us a view of that from... Um, from his perspective. As a matter of fact, his perspective corrects our perspective. Look again at verse 15. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Or as the NIV would say, um, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So in other words, our, our happiness and contentment, it doesn't depend on collecting a lot of stuff. Our real desire as believers, as Christians, as, as children of God, as followers, is found in the spiritual realm. That's where, our, that's where our happiness should be found. The things of the world won't ever satisfy us. Even though we think they will, they won't ever satisfy us because they're temporary. But the Lord and His kingdom are eternal. So we can collect all we want from the world. We can have everything that, that, that our heart desires from the world. And it's like drinking that salt water I talked about. We're still going to be empty on the inside. We're still going to be empty. Greed is dangerous. So we have to be watchful. We have to set up guard. All right, so now Jesus says uh, he's going he's to drive his point home. He's a, he tells us a story about a rich farmer that shows us what greed can do. So our next point is the rich fool. The rich fool. Look at verse 16. 
And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? So this guy has got a, he has an abundant harvest. He's got a lot of stuff, and he's got so much stuff that his barns can't hold, him up, hold it all. I mean, he's successful, right? He, and success is good. That's not the enemy. Success is a good thing when it's handled correctly. When it's not handled correctly, it's, it's dangerous. It's a bad thing. Just like right here in this man's life. Notice this trail of stuff that he had. Verse 17, and he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? So now I got all this stuff, but I got to worry about all this stuff now. Right? So we all want stuff, but I promise you, every new possession you get, it only loads you up with more exhaustion. It only puts more on you. You go buy a new radio for your car, a nice new expensive stereo for your car, but, but what if somebody takes it? What if somebody steals it and knocks your window out and takes it? So now you're burdened with carrying this nice new radio around in your car every day. You, you, I mean, you got to carry it around, so that's a burden, right? So every new possession just brings more problems, more exhaustion. You own nothing, hey, that's easy when you own nothing. But you go buy stuff, well, now it's time to get alarms and insurance. That's true, right? Praise God for nice things, but they bring added problems, don't they? Just like the rich farmer here, uh, he's stressing, I have all this stuff now. I got a lot of stuff now, but I don't have a lot of room. So what's his solution? How does, he, how does he fix his problem? I'll just build bigger and better to hold all my stuff. Look at verse 18. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and goods. Now, nothing wrong with smart business decisions, right? When the motivation's right. And his decision right here, though, is, is motivated by greed. Pure greed. And it's easy to spot the greed and selfishness here. In, in these two verses, he says, I, I'll, or my, eight times. Eight times in these two verses. So what greed does is it, is it infects everything with selfishness and self-idolatry. Everything's viewed through the lens of, what am I going to get out of this? Right? And I've known people who are ate up with greed like this. I worked for a guy not long ago. And... We're on Facebook Live, so maybe he'll watch this and get saved. But whenever things were brought up about places that, that we could go or events that we could be a part of, the first question out of his mouth, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? You know what's missing from that type of thinking? There's no mention of God. There's, there's no gratitude towards God. There's no, hey, hey, God, thank you for the abundance you've already blessed me with. What do you want me to do with it now, Lord? There's no thought of God at all. No thought of others. Just how can I keep all this to myself? Here's the point. The rich farmer, he's self-satisfied. He's self-content. He's self-absorbed. He said, my fields, my crops, my barns, my abundance. So he's totally self-absorbed. And that's what greed does. It produces this self-absorption. But not only the self-absorption, but it also, look at verse 19, it shows that it produces self-deception too. He says, I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. So the first deception is that, that abundance will buy me happiness. That's the first deception. Don't be deceived. Stuff will never bring you any lasting happiness. It won't. Any lasting satisfaction you'll have in your life will never come out of stuff. 
won't happen. Uh, a matter of fact, a very wealthy celebrity said in an interview with uh, People Magazine one time, he said, I sit in my house and sometimes I get so lonely it's unbelievable. Life's been so good to me. I've got a great wife, good kids, money, a lot of money, my own health, and I'm lonely and bored. I often wondered why so many rich people commit suicide. Money sure isn't a cure-all. That's what he said. The second deception is that abundance ensures my future. Look back at the verse 19. He says, I say to my soul, soul, you have so many goods laid up for many years to come. So he's saying, my, fu- my future is what? My future is guaranteed. He said, I got it made. I'm going to be able to kick back and, and, and enjoy this and relax the rest of my life for many years. But the next verse shows us how irrational that kind of thinking is. It's very irrational. Here's the next point. Point number three, but God. But God. Verse 20, that's how it starts out, but God. Look, eventually, there's going to be that but God for everybody. There's going to be that moment for every one of us. This guy wanted to ignore God, but, but look, you can only do that for so long. Eventually, you're going to come face to face with him. He thought that he was, uh, he was going to really enjoy the rest of his life now, but Jesus didn't see him enjoying life at all. He saw him facing death without God. And here's God's response, verse 20. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you've prepared? So God calls him a fool, a fool. And that's what he was. That's absolutely what he was. He thought he was the master of his own fate. He had no need for God at all, no desire for him. And that's the very definition of a fool, isn't it? Somebody who doesn't take God or, or spiritual realities into account. Psalm 14, the very, first, uh, the very first verse, Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So the fool just lives for the moment. He lives for the temporary things of the world. And that's all that matters to him. Get all you can while you can. Get all you can while you can. You see the, the big disparity there? The big contrast there, the farmer says, I've got it made. My future's looking great. And God says, you fool, you have no future. Mm-hmm. Tonight, you enter into eternity. That's a warning, you know, to all of us. And the future is something we don't have a clue about. We know absolutely nothing about our future. We know a lot of things. We know a lot of stuff. We can read a lot of books, but we have no idea what our future holds. The farmer thought he knew, but he was wrong. He was dead wrong. So here's the thing. Wealth, according to the world, is dying. It's, die- it's temporary. All right, look back at verse 20. He says, and now who will own what you've prepared? So God's telling him, he says, look, you traded your soul for the things of this world. And you're not even going to get to enjoy them. Other people are going to enjoy what you worked so hard for while you sit in hell for all of eternity. Mm-hmm. So you're willing to trade a few years of your, uh, of your life, a few years of pleasure for an eternity of torment and suffering. That's why he's a fool. And that's tough right there because, look, we all need to let that soak in. Every one of us needs to let that soak in. Look at verse 21. So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So any person... Anybody, any person who lives only for themselves without taking God into account. And one day, usually sooner than they think, his soul is going to be required. 
So here's the question of the day. Here's the question we all have to get right. We all got to ask ourselves. We all got to make sure we get this question right. Are you rich towards the world and bankrupt towards God? Are you rich towards the world and bankrupt towards God? Because look, money, possessions, it ain't going to do you no good during that day. You can't buy your way into heaven. There's nothing wrong with possessions at all. There's nothing wrong with having nice things unless they keep you from seeking God. So what do we do about it? What can we do about this? Here's our next point. I want to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at it. It's the application. So we got some choices that we need to make to avoid the danger of greed. There's danger greed brings, so let's, let's make some choices. First, we've got to guard our heart from greed. We have to choose to put our treasures in the right place. Matthew 6.21, he says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. So the point is, God and his, and his kingdom and His desires, they should become our treasure. Because if they do that, then our heart's going to follow that. Our heart's going to become spiritual and passionate for God and His glory. But the danger is, is if we don't choose that, if, if our treasure's in worldly stuff, in worldly things, then that's where our heart's going to follow. It's going to be in worldliness. We'll be robbed of our desire for spiritual things. A.W. Tozer said that, and I love this, he said, The streets of gold do not have too great an appeal for those who pile up gold here on earth. The streets of gold do not have too great an appeal for those who pile up gold here on earth. Or let's read the warning Jesus gave, Matthew 6. Turn to Matthew 6. I want you to see this as we read it. Matthew chapter 6. When you get there, say praise God. God. Y'all there? Praise Praise God. Matthew 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. He cannot serve God in wealth. Let me read that again, because that's, that's a pretty radical statement. No one can serve two masters. For he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. So if money or stuff is my main passion then my heart's going to be turned against God. That's serious. That's serious, y'all. I, I want to guard myself against that, and I know you do too. So, so what do we do? How do we guard ourselves against greed? How do we guard ourselves against letting money become our passion? Well, the key to saving yourself from greed and materialism, here it is. It's giving. That's the key. It's giving. One man said, wealth is no harm, but the uh, inability to give, give it up is deadly. Wealth is of no harm, but the inability to give it up is deadly. So in other words, wealth can't harm us unless we're willing, uh, wealth can't harm us if we're willing to give some of it away. Because what happens is sacrificial giving disarms the power of greed. So when we choose to give, even even if it means we go without in some way in our lives, then we've made the choice to stand up against greed. we made the choice to take control of our flesh because that's what wants to control us and move us away from God. So we make the choice to stand up against it. So what happens is giving loosens the stronghold that greed has on us. But on the other hand, lack of giving, lack of discipline giving, will hinder your growth as a Christian. 
It leaves an area you've, uh, an area that you fenced off from God, where you're still Lord of your life in that area. So these places that we still struggle with, with God, we still wrestle with Him, uh, the things of the world that we're wrestling with Him over, that resistance comes from your flesh. You're giving into it. You're giving into your flesh. And that hinders your growth. So real quick, let's look at this idea of discipline giving. See what it means. Giving always begins with a right attitude. Giving always begins with the right attitude, the correct thinking about giving, right? So first, first thing we've got to do is we've got to understand that giving will never, ever, 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 ever earn us a greater position before God. It will never make us better than other Christians. And the second thing is, even though giving won't gain you favor with God, it does bring blessing into your life. See, Satan lies. Satan, Satan uh, spreads the lies and he tells you, he says, you, you start giving sacrificially and real soon you won't have anything. You won't have anything left. But the truth of God, God says the opposite. He says you start sacrificially giving and, and, and you'll start being blessed. Coach says this all the time. He says you can't outgive God. He'll bless your life when you give to him and his work. I like the way one person put it. He said, let us give according to our incomes, lest God make our incomes match our gifts. <laughs> what if God made our incomes match our gifts? That's a reality check. And look, I'm not up here preaching to your prosperity. I'm not telling you this is the way to riches. I'm telling you that giving with the right attitude does bring blessing into your life. The blessing could be Things like your car not breaking down, or your shoes lasting a little bit longer, or your food going a little bit farther. That could be the blessing in your life. But giving won't, won't earn us greater position with God, but it does somehow bring blessing into our life. So, so keep in mind, God is pleased with sacrificial and generous giving. Jesus pointed it out uh, in, in Mark 12 when he talked about the poor widow who could only afford part of the penny. Matthew 12, uh, or Mark 12, rather, verses 43 and 44. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I'll tell you the truth. This poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Why was Jesus pleased with that? Yeah, showed her faith. That was right. It was sacrificial. She trusted God to take care of her, and that freed her up to give everything. So I can give sacrificially knowing that he will provide for me. And I also, the last thing is understand that the giving, your giving is determined between you and God. It's his money to begin with. All of it, every bit of it, 100% of it is his. So ask him how much you should give and then obey what he tells you. Right? I can't tell you how much to give. He will. Some may be 5%, some may be 15%. I'm not going to preach a 10% tithe to you. I'm not going to do it. Some people might, but, but that's putting you back under the law. And the Bible tells us that those who live under the law are cursed. I'm not going to put you back under a curse. It's not 10%. It, 10% may be what the Lord directs you to give. It may be your number, but it also may be more. It might be less. Your giving is not about checking off something that you've done off the list. It's about happily giving to God what he's already given to you. 
So the key to freeing us from this, this deadly materialism and greed is discipline giving. Discipline giving. And that's the kind of life that, that keeps us, that keeps our treasures where they should be. And that's in heaven. Amen. Because your heart's going to follow where your treasure is. Let's pray. Father, Lord, thank you so much for this word. Lord, thank you so much for how every piece of your word fits together perfectly. Lord, I pray that, um, that we would go out from this place. We would allow this word to, to change us but that we would also go out from this place and take this out into the streets. That we would share any and everything that we had learned today with everyone that we come across this next week. All for your glory, all for your honor, all for your kingdom. God, I pray now as your gospel is shared that if there be any amongst us today that, that don't have a relationship with your, with, your, um, with your son Jesus, Lord, that I pray that we would see your hand at work amongst us today. I ask you this now in the most heavenly name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So, God puts us here. Why? Do what? To glorify Him. And how do you glorify God? To be rich in Him. Not to be rich in this world. Not to be rich in stuff. Not to be greedy and love stuff. There's nothing wrong with having stuff. But when it takes the place of God in your life, when it becomes your God, when it becomes your idol, and you've broken one of the commandments, right? You've made a God of your own image. You're worshiping a God of your own image. So God put you here to glorify Him, to follow Him, to love Him. And I'll tell you, there's never been a time in your life where you have submitted to the authority of Jesus as your Savior. You've got an opportunity today. You've got an opportunity, today, and we've said it before, walking this aisle doesn't save you. You can be saved right there in your seat. And know that Jesus came to die for you. He lived for you. He was the only one that would ever live a perfect and sinless life. And he did it. He did it for the sole purpose of being our sacrifice. He was, he was hung on a cross. He was buried and he raised the third day. God raised him up the third day so that we would worship a living God. And, and I'll just say that if there's never been a time in your life where you've submitted to that, you've got an opportunity to do that today. Don't walk out these doors. Today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. Don't walk out these doors without getting that taken care of today. We can have a conversation about salvation. We can have a conversation about church membership or baptism, whatever it is. If you need to come to the altar and pray, but use this time of invitation now to follow how the Spirit leads. If you'll all stand.